Welcome to the PH Journals podcast, where we explore hunting, wildlife management, and conservation. As hunters and conservationists, we know that hunting can be a powerful tool for wildlife conservation, generating revenue and promoting healthy ecosystems. Join us as we explore the latest research, interviewing experts and practitioners, and sharing stories from the field. Whether you're a hunter or conservationist, or simply interested in learning more about this somewhat controversial topic. Hi, my name is Dylan Love. I'm a professional hunter out of the southern tip of the dark continent. Join us as I believe hunting is our best conservation tool we have to offer. Now, um, but before we we get going and stuff, I just maybe just if you want to just fill everyone in back home who's who's what here and who are you, where are you from, what do you do? <laughs> well, my name's uh, Wayne Dell. I'm the owner of African Brothers Safari here in the Eastern Cape. Um, I registered or established this company in 2012. And I've been a professional hunter since 2009. Um, growing up in the Eastern Cape, avid houndsman, hunting push pig with my father and uncle. And then from there, just got passionate about being in the bush, up and about, hunting. Uh, got a taste of hunting with international clients when it started becoming quite popular. Um, because prior to that, everything was just hunt with your buddies, hunt with your friends neighbors, family, and then kind of thought, now, well, this is a career that I want to get into. Um, and then I had an uncle who's an outfitter and a professional hunter, and a cousin who, who did it, went and did a bit of appying with him, got to carry all the animals and got to experience it. And I just enjoyed being out in the bush and teaching guys from the States, whoever I was hunting with at the time, about the Eastern Cape. And that's kind of where I am, and that's my passion. Shit, Ryan, and you know, but obviously, we we spoke earlier today about a, a brilliant topic, and I think um, it's probably one of the most important ones. But before we get into that, um, I just want you to fill everyone in about some of the struggles that you've had, especially now with the social media thing. Uh, what what's that all about? What happened there? Um, uh, man. Look, social media is my biggest market marketing tool. I'm sure everyone in the industry uses it. Um, being a smaller company, I haven't got the funding to go overseas and pay for the big shows and do that. So social media is super important to me. And recently I've gone through, basically in the past three weeks, I have been reported more times than I have since I've started my Facebook page as a hunter way back when, when I started my company and everything, and when it was still only Facebook pages where you could, you know, do your advertising, and obviously Instagram came into it and it was a bit more popular, and got onto all those platforms, but in the last three weeks, I've been reported for violence, taking using other someone else's content, and not sticking to community guidelines, and I've been part of this whole meta business, if you want to call it, for, for the last couple of years. But it's a pain because they've limited me to only my followers. So I can't build on my brand or build on my company because I'm just limited to the thousand people that are, are, are following me at the moment. Jim, um, you know, I I think we could sit here all night and 
discuss a couple of things that have gone on in the industry and all that sort of stuff. But we've kind of, I mean, you streaks ahead of me as far as PHing and the outfitting side of things are concerned. But we've we've kind of come to a crossroads where we find ourselves in a very similar place. And you know, when you when you came to me as a topic, one of one of my more interesting questions was, and especially now, by the way, firstly, congratulations, a little one on the way. It's gonna gonna change the Thanks, it's gonna change it completely. But what was one of your key motivations about breaking away from the traditional freelance PH to becoming an outfitter and and all that sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, Dylan. Uh, the the one thing you got to look at is being a freelance guy. I watched your one of your recent podcasts and so that. It's a tricky industry, and people seem to think it's it's a very in, easy industry to get into. Um, guys, it's by no means an easy job. If you're thinking of easy, go and do do something else in the corporate world. Um, but the big thing was when you're a freelance freelance guard, you you offer yourself to a number of outfitters, and you kind of you can't put all your eggs in one basket because you need to fill your season up to make enough money in the year to make a living. And the problem being a young guy coming into the industry is you don't get the opportunities to to fill your calendar. Um, and if you do, it is a very tricky situation. Um, I've, I've, I've been one of those guys that have hunted with 10 different companies through my freelancing career. And you will find a company where you start with, they'll give you a few hunts, You'll scratch around, hear about another company, offer your services there, maybe go and do a little bit of an apprentice. And they'll offer you one or two hunts. And it'll go like that for seasons while you're building your, your reputation as a guy. But the problem comes in when you're a PH is where companies dislike other companies. And I know a lot of people know what I'm talking about who, who, who watch this. You commit yourself to a company and he gives you four hands for the season and he doesn't have any more for you at that given time. So you start filling your calendar with others. And as you're going along, all of a sudden the guy that you committed to yourself first phones you later and says, I've got hands for you. And you've already taken from a second company. And it clashes. Now you're in a very tricky situation. What do you do? Do you cancel and give up this hunt with this second company because you want to be loyal to the first. You didn't have hunts for you in the beginning. Or do you stick with that company and then not get any more hunts afterwards from the first company? So it's a very tricky situation to get yourself in. And what happened with me was um, obviously I stuck with the second company because they offered me the opportunity. And I took the hunts and they never got any more hunts from the previous previous place. So I built that and then I started hunting with the second company and that built and built and built. But the, the biggest reason for me to pull away to become an, an outfitter for myself was the fact that people don't realize in the PHing industry in South Africa is that Firstly, it's your contacts that you use to hunt with all the international clients that come out. Most of these hunting ranches uh, or outfitters are small, have a small property where they're based from, but you travel to hunt all your different species because that's how you get the best quality of species throughout the Eastern Cape. And 
the, the hunting grounds don't belong to them. They belong to the PH. The PH makes the connections with either an uncle, a friend, a, you know, family member. So you build up your hunting areas as the guide and the outfitter enjoys booking you because you've got so many areas to hunt in you know, at that time. And they don't have to worry about whether the clients are getting good animals or not. And I think a lot of clients that come out don't realize this. It's 90% of the time it's the PH's hunting area. It's 100% of the time the PH's vehicle, the PH's tracker, the PH's dog, you know, and so on and so forth. And you are basically doing everything. And, and a couple of companies I answered that the outfits never appeared. So the only face the client ever saw was mine. The guy picked him up from the airport and the guy delivered him back at the airport after a successful safari. So I was like, why am I making someone else so wealthy? He doesn't bother even coming out to meet his clients. And I'm the face of the company. Why don't I just start my own? So that's what pushed me into becoming my own outfitter. Um, but obviously, the rules have changed a lot. Um, I know when I did my license, we had to do four years of guiding before you could apply for your outfitter's license. So I had to stick it out for the four years. And then as soon as I got to my four years, I applied for my outfitter's license and went to my own. Has, has, I mean, you, you've been in the game now for some time. Has it changed from when it started to where it is now that you feel – you you know there's 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 nothing more exciting for me to see young and up and coming outfitters out there doing really really well out there and and bringing the industry into such good light. But do you feel that that the older generation that's hung around for some time now is kind of you know they've got that bitterness of to competition? Has has it changed over time, or is was that just something that slowly crept in? Man has definitely changed. Um, I can just explain to you from when I was coming out of school, um, the, the, the PH school that I did my license with contacted me when I was 18 years old and wanted me to come and do my license. But obviously back then, I know guys are doing it now. You had to be 21 to be registered. I don't know if it's changed. There are a lot of guys who were doing their PH licenses earlier. But I, I put it off for a while and I went, Grew up, went overseas, did my thing, and then came back and then decided to um, go into my hunting career as such. And I only did my license, I think I was about 23, 24 years old. So um, back then, the schools used to do three classes a year, three, you know, and in that was 10 professors. They did 13 professional hunters a year from that one school. Um, and then after that, what happened was they really started pushing it where they were doing a school a month. So instead of only doing 30 PHs a year, you started getting 120 PHs a year out of that one specific school, which put a lot of strain on the industry in the sense of getting hunts where the older, older PHs could fill their calendars. Yeah, you've got to do 250 days or more as a professional hunter to make a okay living. I don't think it's enough living to you have a wife and kids and thing, but if you're a single guy, you, know, you live out your truck, you live in the lodges, you don't own a place, you know, it's great for that. But once you're a bit older, you need to actually start thinking a little bit further. Um, and I think that's where it put a lot of pressure on the industry where now 
where the outfitters used to push our money up every season. Now there's a flood of young professional hunters that are willing to hunt for nothing. Um, parents who have bought them their best pickups and set them all up and said, there's a job for you, get out of the house, off you go. We're willing to hunt for five, six hundred grand. You know, at the time when we started, where us older PHs couldn't afford that. You know, we had bills to pay. And, it, and, it, and I think that's where it started. You know, the older guys started getting a little bit ticked off. But if you, the whole thing about that too is if you're a good PH and you've got yourself established in a company, the guys will keep you on because um, they want to keep their name really, really good. Um, but it does, when they have a lot of groups coming in, they can just hire these young guys. And I think some guys made the mistake doing that because you heard some horror stories throughout the years of where the guy was inexperienced. He hadn't done the practical side of it. Where traditionally the PHs that went and did the course, you know, so it was the 10-day course. I'm sure yours was the same, where it was the 10-day intense course. Um, and the government wanted to change it into a four-year course. The older generation of PHs were all farmers, hunters. They had the experience already. They just had to be licensed with the government. So it was a way they had to go to the school, get licensed with the government so they can hunt with international clients. But you've got these guys that are coming out, these big towns um, and cities, didn't know the front or the back end of a rifle and were getting their licenses in 10 days and going off on their own. And it was, it, it did give the industry a bit of a crappy name, to put it lightly, because you had a lot of young, inexperienced guys there. Yeah, kind of like like chance takers. I, I I was kind of you know, <clears throat> you, you mentioned a good pH, and I, I want to ask you the question: what 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 justifies a good pH? What makes a good pH? And because you know, at the end of the day, I kind of I was hoping what COVID would do is is filter out the system because, like you said earlier, I just feel as well these these youngsters are getting into this industry for the lifestyle. And they think it's all this, you know, yeah. sunshine and roses. Working for, for a year and then realizing, you know what, hang on. I rather want to be going chasing dolls or, or, or going to live the corporate life and that sort of stuff. And we're sitting with this floodgate full of PHs that, like you said, will work for nothing in their spare time. But at the same sense, you know, it hasn't quite filtered out the... I'm not going to call it riffraff, but but the guys that were taking it for for what it was worth, and that was the lifestyle, which is a complete misconception. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, the, look, the what you're, you're getting back to your question: What's a good pH? Um, a guy that can hunt in an area that he's never been in before. That would be my testing story. Can an oak actually hunt? Because a pH is also only as good as the areas that an outfitter has available to him to hunt. Can, can I stop you there, Wayne? Flip side of the coin. What? This, I, was, I was asked this question on social media the other day, and we, we've mentioned it briefly now how much the industry has changed. But what, what, what's hunting? Is it fair chase? Is it still fair chase? Is it free range, like a lot of these guys are, are, are saying? Um, is it off? Is it built on hunting off the back of the bucky? You know what? What, what sort of qualifications do you need? I mean, 
back in the older generation and i mean when i when i started coming through i mean i met you at at the lodge with was it um lionel and all those guys and you sit around the the campfire and you listen to these stories on how you guys got in and i felt over time those stories kind of filtered away and it was trying to get the animal as quickly as possible and leave the experience behind you know leave the stalking behind leave all that sort of stuff behind and that's what built on i mean you guys were never getting back to the lodge oh no you know what we dropped 30 animals or 10 animals today it was more about the experience so so what justifies a good hunt good hunt is fair chance um there's there's no doubt about that look unfortunately south africa eastern cape you are going to hunt in high-fenced areas but people must understand our high-fenced areas are huge, okay? Um, and the whole thing is getting out there and hunting a quality animal for the client that's with you. So I'll stick with the very thing from when I started, and, I, and I've told a lot of young PHs this before as well. Now I keep talking about getting those big numbers, shooting 10, 20 animals a day and everything. Outfitters do put a lot of pressure on their guys, straight up. I've been in situations where you must print money. So you must shoot an animal, you know, every five minutes that you're out there. And that's not hunting. That's freaking going to the grocery store and shopping. And there are places that do that. But unfortunately, as a young guy, when you get into the industry, you've got to figure out what type of professional hunter you want to be. You want to go hunt for those big companies that have got, you know, these places where you can shoot 10, 12 animals in a morning. Or do you want to be a hunter? So that's a tough one that you've got to make on your own, in your own mind. And I've always said to the young guys as well, don't ever be pressured to be shooting inferior animals to go back overseas. Because I, I do it this way. If I'm comfortable and happy to mount that animal in my own living room as my representative species, to show to my family and friends and everything up here, my client will squeeze the trigger. If it doesn't fit in my room, I'm sure as nuts not pulling the trigger because that guy spent a lifetime to come out to South Africa or wherever he's hunting, and he's got to take that back home and show it to his friends. Then you get the guys who do want to hunt tape measure stuff. That's a, very, that's a, different, that's a different conversation altogether, but what I'm talking about is quality hunting, quality trophies. And if you if you do that and you start sifting through everything and you actually concentrate on what you're doing, the big animals do appear. Um, and I've always said, be a lucky hunter. The lucky, you know, I'd rather be a lucky hunter than a guy that's absolutely brilliant because luck goes a long way when you're out there in the bush. And your luck changes at a drop of a hat. You'll be hunting a warthog, yeah, but you go around the corner, the warthog's giving you slip and he has a blue wildebeest. Yeah, depending on the areas you're hunting in and, and so on and so forth. Always be prepared. Um, and I, I would definitely say that outfitters put a lot of pressure on the on the young oaks and the young oaks don't know how to stand up to the outfitter and say, you know, I can't find this animal. Be honest with your client. That's also, I think, one of the biggest things to be a, a really good professional hunter. Be honest with the guy. They've never seen the species before. They've never seen a big kudu. When they see their first kudu with horns, um, I'll never forget an old PH told me that. He says, anything with horns with a client looks huge. You know, 
So remember, you need to teach him while he's here what's, what's good and what's not, especially when it comes to kudu. Most of it's all related to shape, not a tape measure. So if he's a figure eight bull, he's a flaring out bull, is he hooking forward or is he just climb? You know what I mean? You've got to, you've got to explain to the guy so while he's here on his safari, he can also look for those things. You're teaching him. And I think that's what makes you a good professional hunter. When you um, when you scout in these places uh, to hunt, and I mean, one of the things that I've learned over time is, and it's become part of my important itinerary, is, is like you said, these 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 bigger bigger these bigger role players in the industry, they flood their properties with stock. Let's and. At the end of every season, they're heading along to these big, big auctions and they, they're restocking their properties. And there is there is a space in the market for that. But like you said, that's a that's a discussion from another time. But for me, what, I, what I'm looking for is guys that have got conservation at heart, number one. And number two, good property management. Yeah. That's it. So some of the criteria is... And I want you to try and see this from two sides. As a professional hunter, what are you looking for when you're trying to find a new property? And likewise, what are you looking for as an outfitter that you want to partner with those people in those individual situations? Okay, so so where I've taken my company now is I've tried to lead it away from those big game ranches as, you know, we all know exist here in SA. So... I'm trying to, from my side as an outfitter, offer an authentic hunt. What, what us true South Africans would do. Where, where, where would you as a South African go and hunt your bushbuck or go hunt your kudu, um, shoot your springbuck and your blessbuck and so on and so forth? What I grew up doing as a, as a kid was hunting big open stock ranches. There's a lot of game out there that we can hunt throughout the year on open stock ranches. We don't need to have half-fenced properties to hunt them in. A lot of these, these farmers now, um, so, so, so when the industry flipped, eh, let's, let's, let's give everyone a bit of a, an insight to what I mean by when the industry flipped, where, where game became a hot commodity and hunting became commercial. Just remember, every stock farmer out there kept his grazing for his sheep, goats, cattle. That's what he wanted. That's what made him money. The right. age industry took off. Outfitters started getting bigger and bigger. Traditionally, all our outfitters started hunting in our government reserves. Eh? So they hunted all your big and powerfuls and tall honors, all those big reserves throughout Eastern Cape. They had the, the hunting rights in those. And then your private farms started building up. Yeah. But before your half-fence private farms came into account, the, the farmer didn't want game on his property because it out ate his stock. So the less kudu he had on his farm, the more goats he could keep. You see, and that's, and that's our oil. Then all of a sudden, us PHs came along needing areas to hunt because now the industry's grown. We went and started knocking on these farmers' doors. Hey, bud, I need a, you've got some springbuck running in there amongst your goats and stuff like that. We'll offer you so much. The output is paying X, Y, Z. And then the best part about it is you keep your meat. <laughs> so the farmer starts going, hey, I can put it in my freezer and I get paid for that and it cost me nothing. Value. The value went and changed the whole ball game of the industry. Right. 
So, so now the farmers are looking after the stuff and they're putting value to the game. So the more money they're making out of their game now, the better our populations and everything gets. You know, there's more springbuck, there's more blessedbuck because the guys aren't out hunting them now because they just want to keep a small herd there. They think of that pH who came and shot three this year, shit, he might need five next year. You know, so the whole mindset of the industry changed, if you, if you think of it that way. So there are a lot of these stock farms that I look at and I go and I've got dealings with family, friends, my dad's old friends, and I'll go look there and go and look at an area. Obviously, property size is important. I'd, I'd never go hunt a guy on a, on a small area. Yeah, when you chat to the guys in the States, they hunt in small areas. You know, if you think of it, they've got like 12 acres behind their house, 30 acres behind their house. Yeah, when I talk small area, I talk 300, 400 hectares. I, wouldn't, I won't go near that, but it's a massive size for you know, the American guy. But the bonus is, is what you need to try and do is, or what I've, tried, I've done with mine is find one farmer and start friending the rest and kind of get into, you know, into their good books and kind of, you know, the best way of doing it is getting there, being polite, cleaning up afterwards. And, I, and this is a big tip for young PHs. Guys, don't ever think that the animal lying in the bush is the farmer's responsibility. If you ever leave an animal in the bush and you've never carried it out, even if it's piece by piece, for that farmer, don't expect to go hunt there again. Yeah, and I think a lot of young PHs make that mistake. Um, I've never left an animal in the bush, and I've carried my horse out all night until I've got that species out for, for the farmer. And I'm always welcome back. Introduce yourself when you get there to the farm, even though you've got permission to hunt it. Go see the farmer in the morning. And go see him when you left, give him a full report of what you saw, what your client missed, so they can keep tabs on if the guy may have wounded it or whatever the case. It's, it's a relationship. And I think that's super, super important. Wayne, you mentioned how the industry changed once the, the, the dollar value started playing a big role in the stock farmers and all that sort of stuff. I've I've picked up over the the past couple of years is is there's been another boom to to the breeding side of things. Um, for instance, and I said it a couple of years ago, and I, I kind of you know I, I remember we were sitting at the one SCR show and we had sable bulls on 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 special for I think it was a thousand five hundred dollars. Whereas when I started going to the shows, they were about five thousand to at least nine thousand dollars a sable bull. So what happened is is that the, the flood of of these animals from the breeders was huge. But now we've hit like a taper yes. we've hit a taper session where we're kind of dropping now. And I mean I, on this previous hunt of mine, I discussed it with you. We were just looking for something as as common as an Elam bull. But there, no one, no one has got good mature Elam bull around because what what's happened is I just find that these oaks are shooting these animals are premature. Number one, we're trying to get their their bang for the buck, and number two is that all these all these animals that are taking longer to to mature your 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 kudu, your waterbuck, your buffalo, your eland from anything from like ten to 11, 12 years old and onwards, th there's nothing around. And that's purely because of the breeding situation, or, or am I seeing this differently? Uh, you are right. 
but I also do think if you if you look back at what COVID did to us, mm. um, the, uh, the South African Biltong Hunters went in and, and those big big game ranches, game farmers, uh, where we would be able to go scratch out a, a big hill and bull here and there, they were having to pay their staff and everything else their high running expenses from hunting out their trophies at the South Africans. And I think a lot of big companies really hammer their properties to keep themselves afloat. And I also do think the drought that we were going through mm. like slowed up the breeding. But you are right. There, there, are, there are places where what you and I call mature mm. and what they call mature is yeah, yeah. You know, black and white. You know, unfortunately, you will find those that sort of trying to take you know, the, the Mickey. They're trying to make as much money as possible. Mm. Um, and another difficult place to, for, you know, for hunting as a as an outfitter, me especially going to price around, I don't own my own property. I base myself out of my father's stock ranch. We've got accommodation and stuff there, but I have to make, obviously, all my own connections for my hunting and hunting areas and stuff like that. And it's become very difficult when, the landowners themselves and farmers are tape measuring everything. And that's the tricky one. I mean, mm. it's between this inch and this inch is this price mm. we applied. It's between this and this. It's one of the days where you rocked up at the farm and built um, as well to, you know, find stock, find game, especially trying to be competitive with these big guys who are giving the animals away for free. Well, you mentioned some of the, the struggles and I wanted to, to get to that now. Um, transferring from a full-time or freelance PH to now you're offering, what is some of, other than the social media renegade you've had there, what, what is some of the, the, the more simple struggles you've had doing the transition? Uh, first of all, if you're going to become an outfitter, it's your freelancing career. <laughs> Goodbye. That shit ain't happening. Um, because there is a fear that you will go in there and steal clients. Um, every outfitter has got this absolute fear. Or I should put it this way. Every outfitter thinks a client belongs to them. They own it. They own the client that's coming in. Um, yeah, yeah, just another little interesting one where hunting for multiple companies, right? That was also the worry where if I hunted for a company A and I went and I hunted for company B, they'd be worried that I was taking clients from this company to this company and, and keeping busy on this side. So that was also, you know, a struggle being a freelance. But definitely when you go from freelance guide to outfitter, the companies that you hunted for before, if you want to fill in your season and just do um, a, an odd freelance hunt to keep you ticking over between your own clients, because obviously when you go into it, you're no, not going to be fully booked. That ain't happening. You know, I've struggled through it for many years. I've even shut down for a period of three, four years and then start, slowly started building it again. It's not easy. Um, don't think you're going to be full up every year. It's, it's not going to happen. 
booking new clients is extremely difficult. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges is where you may have been a, a PH that did 150. I, I was doing 170 days a year. 200 days was one of my good years where I was full on, you know, I was never home. It's also not a, not a lifestyle you want to, you, you know, if you want to start settling down. Um, and going into it and then, yeah, I'll do three hunts and I'll make four times the amount of money than what I would have as a guide. But then I've got a very big gap. So you either got to figure out another business to keep you ticking over. Um, I don't think you'd be able to go and work somewhere because that's extremely difficult if you take on a job and then you want to take time off to outfit your own clients. That's, that's difficult. Unless you've got a person who, who's really good to you and, and will allow you to do that. Um, but definitely that whole being quiet for such long periods and not knowing when your next paycheck comes in, I think that's also is very difficult. I wanted to... Um... I wanted to touch a little bit on the the whole client situation. You know, it was it was a general rule of thumb when we, as, especially as a young professional hunter coming through, you you and you left a certain property. You never touched clients. You you had no communication with them, and it sort yes. of dropped on the hat. I found I found when I left the previous place I was hunting at and. I just found because I didn't stand for for what was going on there, and I didn't stand for the situation that I had been dealt. And like you said, I I, I had to make that that decision as a professional hunter. Is this part of the? Is this part of my morals and values that I've grown up as a hunter, or is this pushing me to a limit where I don't really find myself comfortable? But what what, what my point I'm trying to get at is that the clients that I had hunted for for ten. 10 or 11 years at that stage um you create this bond and you create this this experience and this this cherishable moments in in their memory bank and when you leave a certain individual or a certain property or company whatever it is it's very difficult to have that disconnect between you and the client what what is your opinion on clients following you as a professional hunter now to your outfitting because you gave them the experience they were looking for back at the ranch? Um, look, me, me personally, I haven't got a problem with it. I have not got a problem with it. Like, as I've said to a lot of people before as well, um, also in the PHing where you're hunting in the in a certain company, you and I are hunting there. Um, I found in the industry PHs also didn't help each other there. So like my motto is I hunt for the name of my shirt. So if I'm struggling, you help me out. You struggle because we hunt under one umbrella. Those oaks didn't help you help you with that. And then now with your clients, say you leaving and stuff like that, as in my opinion, as long as you went all out for that company and presented yourself as best as you could for that company and weren't driving in the pickup with them and handing out brochures for your company on the sideline. You understand what I'm saying? Um, that, that's a no-no. You know what I mean? But I can't stop a client if I hired you as one of my guys and he really, really enjoys hunting with you um, and he contacts you next year and asks for a thing. Long ago, social media, when we started, the social media wasn't 
thing. Now everyone, as soon as they leave, they send you a friend request. How do you tell the outfitter you're going to say no to this guy? I don't know. And this is where I say, outfitters don't own clients. If you're doing a good enough job, the guys will come back. If your guys are loyal to you and are, do, are hunting for your, your brand, the clients will come back. Also, again, lots of guys want new experiences. Hey, I want to hunt somewhere else. I, I, I just finished a hunt with a guy now. He's never been to Africa to hunt before, but he's traveled all over Africa. But him and I hit it off so well, and we and we become such close friends. He wants me to organize his next trip somewhere else. So that's the connection. But I can't be angry if he finds another company. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. But I think if you've got a good bond with your clients, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. I look, the same thing. I've been threatened by, by outfitters when I left back in the day. They all jumped onto emails threatening me for stealing their clients. I've yet to hunt one client from any of the companies that I think I've hunted my own clients. But you get threatened, eh? Yeah. Outfitters yeah. aren't happy about Yeah. And, and the, I don't know. I kind of, there was a point in my career where I kind of felt that, you know, this whole the the phing game was going to change forever and and clients i i just think more and more people are becoming it's it's because of social media but people are becoming more invested into um how can i say more invested into personalities more invested into experiences and stuff the gone are the days where they just want to come to south africa and shoot as many animals as they possibly can like you said now those previous clients of yours they they want to go and travel they want to go and see different sites they want to go and taste different foods experience different cultures and stuff so i think as a professional hunter i think the, the game changed completely because now not only are you becoming a hunting professional but you you kind of becoming a tour guide and that's an important part of the the industry and you know a big thing that I've I've realized as well, and I think it's it's such a great way to to see the country is 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 to tackle the slams, you know, the tiny ten, uh, the spiraled horn, do all that sort of stuff. You know, you get in your coastal bushbacks and all this. So, but going forward now, as the industry changes, what are some of the key things that you've highlighted that you you want to carry on doing as a hunter, but also try and improve and better the industry for the future generations? Uh, for me, it's just keeping it authentic. I think that's where I kind of was losing my passion when I was hunting in those zoos. There's no other way to put it. Um, it's got to be authentic. If you, if you want to sell and offer a true South African hunt, it's got to be true. Um, and that's where I aim to carry on with my company. Um, and, yeah, there, there is a time and a place for hunting in our fences. We, we talk about our fences and I, I talk about zoo. It's two different things. You know, if, if you're going to go into a property and there's an area fence for this and fence for that and fence for that, I'll just turn around and, and leave. But if I go into a, a game ranch, which is 30,000 hectares, and there are no internal fences, and there's a fence just around the boundary, you're going to get that guy's going to have a true experience. Yeah. I, I hunted for one company where their property was like that, and we, we could hunt 16 professional hunters and not get in each other's way. 
that go to show the size of the property. Yeah. And in that 10 days, you can't even show the client a tenth of the property. That's true hunting. You know, and those places are great for good group, big groups and stuff like that. But then you've got the guys that do like doing their things on their own, coming with their wives and families. That's kind of more what I'm taking towards because we will travel to hunt exceptional animals throughout. And take the guy from the coastal, you know, where I am, 10 kilometers from the coast, and I drive 200 kilometers inland and I go put you up to 7,000 feet above sea level. You know, let's, let's give him the full experience and then I'm going to put him in the group. You know, um, that's, that's an experience in its own right because you're showing him the diverseness of the Eastern Cape. And I think that's where I will, will keep heading with my company. And um, Wayne, one of, one of the things, I mean, we mentioned your, your social media embarkle. Has, has it been a struggle as far as getting, maybe not getting your name out there, but 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 trying to attract people with this sort of um, idea of a hunting experience, you know, the authentic side of things? Has, has it been a challenge from you to try and express that through to them? Or well, what are some of the avenues you're going? Is it just social media or have you been overseas or? Uh, yeah, so, so I did do a trip overseas and I did go market way back in 2013 when I started. Um, but obviously not having the bucks to do the big shows, I went and did one of the, I went to the Tulsa Arms um, gun show and we went there and we set up a small booth. Um, the, the, the toughest thing I think we're trying to get people to book over social media is the, it's not personal. Remember we talking about like people like now start liking your character and everything like that. It's a lot better now than was than what it was then because now we just have a Zoom meeting or a Skype call or I phone the guy on Instagram and you know I have a chat with him and he gets to know me over the telephone and we keep in contact like that, which is which is really cool. It's a it's a real upgrade from what we used to do, um, where it was just email correspondence, photos, you know that you're quite limited. Um, I still think the best way of marketing, if you do go overseas, is have a good client that's got good, a lot of friends and likes talking hunting like you do. And it's either a barbecue or a meet and greet or coffee. Or, you know, I think that's where you get your biggest client client draw. Um, most of my clients have come from a previous client who's hunted with me and comes back and hunts with me when he can, and he sends his friends. Uh, but I gave no, I gave no bookings um, at the show. All honesty, I didn't even get somebody, you know, wanting a, a quote. And and Wayne, have you have you gone the route of um, of agents and stuff like that? What is your opinion on agents? Uh, you really want the truth? <laughs> I, I think you've had a bad experience. So. Okay, so so straight up, agents are great. Uh, but they, on the flip side, can really, really hurt your company. And he up and left without paying and put me in half a bar's debt, which I paid every single landowner out of my pocket. That's how you keep your business afloat. Not one of my landowners were told they couldn't get their money. I sunk myself to keep them happy. 
and I think that just shows character in, in a sense of I never gave up. I'm still here. I never have a bad experience, but I won't do agency again. And I wanted to ask you this. It, as far as the industry is concerned, what would you like to see change in the next five to ten years? Oh, that's a tough one. For the better, of course. Um, leopard that we've got plenty of and just trying to open up some other species. But a lot of the time I see it's not not so much from our side. We are hindered across the pond where they put all their bands and exports and stuff, which affect us quite a bit on this side. But, yeah, to change in the next five years, I wish they'd pull all the fences down, in all honesty. Um, he, has, he has layman's term, but you put a goldfish into a fish bowl, he only grows that size. Take that same goldfish, you put him in a pond, how big does he get? Um, and that is solely, I, I know from speaking from experience as a kid growing up, we shot kudus on my grandfather's farm that dressed out 200, 250 kilos. That same farm, you were lucky to shoot a bull uh, 10 years ago when I answered there. Lucky to shoot a bull at 125 kilos. You know, 15-inch um, bulls, you shot, you could find some big 15-inch bulls. Oaks were shooting old, mature bulls, and they just over 40. So, and it goes purely, that's, you can throw the best genetics back into that pool. It still won't change the size of the horn. It may for a little period, but quality of, of, of food and grazing, in my opinion, quality of food is your biggest determiner of quality of horn size and growth. Because call it 20 years ago when there were no fences in most areas, the kudu ate on our farm until he was unhappy with the food there. He hopped the fence and went and ate in your farm. So he was eating the highest quality of food where he could. And hence the reason the quality was still good. Uh, do you think... you there. There. Back. Wayne, you back. Hello, Yes, yes, I'm back again. Okay, yeah. So, do you think, um, as far as you, you talk fences, do you think um, the the color variance has obviously had a huge impact on that? Um, what do what do you what do you feel about that? I mean, is that something that that you would carry on motivating, or is it just something that you think must just be there, be exist? I don't I don't motivate color variance. I think it's the biggest gimmick under the sun. Um, you know, you had farmers, you had them running around and folks were shooting them and uh, the value that was put towards them was should have never been a yellow bless buck should be the same price as a normal bless buck in my opinion. Um, and I do think that because of those colours and all that stuff, you know, people aren't going to like my, my comment regarding this. Is It did create small enclosures. People did start fencing off to separate species, and it's affected a lot more than what we've gained. Um, but again, like I say, that's my opinion. 
Yeah. Um, favorite, before we close off, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. Um, favorite area to hunt? And don't be biased about this one. None of the put off areas area is one of your favorites. No, but um, I, I've probably got two. Some of my best, best hunting experiences has been hunting with my butt up in the Tarkasa Mountains. Um, I've hunted some big eland right on the top of those mountains, and that is one hell of a tough hunt. That's just physically challenging. Um, and we went up there and we took the bull by the horns and we achieved some, some awesome quality pools up uh, those Tarka Mountains. Um, when you say Tarka, are you talking more Winterberg side? Uh, right there near, um, what's his name? King. Uh, Greg oh, King. Oh, Greg and King. Yeah, yeah. I've got a buddy who's got a big farm up there. Um, and he invited us. We were at school together. So I've hunted that place from when I was 16 years old. And it was just one of those places when you get there, that old school charm, old school farm hospitality. Um, his dad would say, off you go, guys. No staff, shoot what you want, but you get it out the mountain. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, and that's probably where I shot my first mountain rareback up there. You know, my brother and I were fit. We could carry three out the bush. You know what I mean? It was just real, real hunting. But my, my second place would be is uh, I did a trip to the Northern Cape um, a few years back, and then I hunted there with my dad. And my butt, and we did it three years in a row. It was like our, our yearly visit. And we were lucky enough to hunt on one of the biggest game farms there. Um, just beautiful country. Uh, you know, very different. Man, when you look at something, it looks close, but actually, damn far. <laughs> and flat. It, it was something, it was just a different experience. And going up there, shooting my first dance back there, and going after a really big red heart of beasts. You know, just trying to tick off some quality stuff on our on our bucket list, but just being there with my old man and my and my put under those big open stars and taking the stars apart and having a donkey as a shower, yeah, roughing it, yeah, and that, that's also what I want to try. And, the clients need to experience that. This whole five star lodging has has really turned South African hunting into a temper parade. I don't. I sit and I watch all these big uh, shows, outdoor channels, Tim Shockey and all of them. And guys sleep in tents, man. Guys eat out of cans. They eat out of bags. They walk their asses, you know, raw. They, they, it's, it's a challenge. Why does South Africa have to become so commercial? Let's put you in a fancy lodge. Let's drive you around on the truck. Let's give you a five-course meal. You know what I mean? Yes, there's a, there's a place for that. But if you're wanting the true experience, get your boots dirty. Get some dust on them. Come hiking these fish river valleys with me and chase buffalo. I promise you, you'll open your eyes very quickly. It's a different ballgame. Um, and I think, I think that's where we're losing it um, as a hunting culture in South Africa. Well, one of the one of the things I remember, you know, going to these shows and stuff, 
one of the questions we always asked, especially from the first timers coming out, was, you know, what are the chances we're going to get everything on our list, or what are the chances we're going to get a kudu and stuff? And you find yourself waking up every morning at these big fancy lodges, waking up every morning, and heading along out there, having breakfast at seven, having breakfast at eight o'clock, getting into the pickup, heading out to the bush, and you pretty much guarantee to shoot whatever you're going after. The my, my, my perspective has done a complete 360 since I've, I've kind of gone on my own now is that when people ask me, can I guarantee that they'll finish? I can't, I can't guarantee and that's hunting. That's what hunting's meant to be. You know, I can't, I can't guarantee um, you're gonna get, you know, a good elon bull. I can't guarantee that you're gonna get a good waterbuck or a good bushbuck or whatever, because that's 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 hunting. That's part of the whole experience. So I wanted to ask you two questions quickly in one. What is your favorite animal? Firstly, secondly. For a first timer coming out to South Africa, what would be the animal you suggest him put on his package heading out here? That would give him the best experience. So, so, so for me personally, for, for me personally, uh, Waterbuck is my favorite. He, he's always been on my list. He was my original logo when I, I started my, my company and I managed to get myself a beauty up in the Northern Cape. Um, First animal for a guy that's coming out to SA, I would say Eastern Cape is a kudu. I would definitely highly recommend that. Put it high on your list. Um, and hunt hard for kudu. Uh, if you don't get it, you will have opportunities at other game along the way. Um, my, my last client that answered me, he had such buck fever, he missed three kudu. And went home without. Uh, buck fever had the better of him. But we managed to shoot some extremely, really good quality animals the, the, whole, the whole week that he was here. Um, just quickly on that, do you, are you finding that the pressure is kind of off for the guys that that say those sort of things, that they want to come out and, and what are the chances of them sealing the deal and, and finishing their packages. But yet we, we say this time and time again that once you come out to Africa once, it's kind of in your blood. Um, are you finding that, that that's yeah. happening more and more that, that guys aren't so, they're not, especially professional hunters, they're not so pressurized into completing their packages because they're almost anticipating that client to come back? Um, no, I think PHs are pressured extremely to, to commit and complete because if they don't commit and complete, they don't get a job next year. And I think outfitters do put a hell of a lot of pressure on, on PHs, especially when you've got packages that were sold the year before and are only being hunted this year. And I also think if, you know, we could all predict what the following year is going to be like, We'd make lots of money because we can protect our packages and our, our success rate. But it doesn't work like that. Um, so for, for me as a company, I changed that whole thing. I try to follow the mainstream thing of selling packages and stuff like that. I don't do that. So what, what I do personally is, is give me a list of animals that you want. I put it together on a quote for you. 
I work out your day rate for seven to whatever many days you want to be here. And all you do is pay your accommodation and day rate to cover your stay. So it covers the pH and everything like that. And the quote that I've given you for those animals is what you would, the three animals you'd pay for those three animals. So there's no pressure on taking home mediocrity. You've got to take home quality. So if there isn't the first group of guys, I'm, I'm using my clients as a, an example. The first group of guys came out, I did those two buff, um, and one of the brothers came with, he was only coming for a few planes game animals, but the buff was the important part of the hunt. So we hunted buffalo for seven hard days out of the nine days they were here, and then still had to try and shoot an odd species in between for, for him. And one of his animals on his list was a big Nyala bull. And on the last day, I took him to an area where there, I know there's lots of Nyala. We hunted that whole area the whole day. And I saw probably 10, 15 bulls that if I was hunting for another outfitter under pressure, I would have, I would have thought of shooting one of them. But because this guy, even if you are a PH for me, you know if it's not quality, don't shoot it. He, he didn't feel bad. I said, rather come back and shoot a good bull with me. I can't send you home with that. And he's also that happy as a client because he hasn't paid for something that he hasn't received. So it's just a different way of working the packages and, and hunting. And I find it works better. Everyone's happy at the end of the day. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than having that awkward conversation. And us as PHs, uh, freelance PHs hunting for some of these other companies that to do the book work, eh? um, for, for the outfitters and do the final invoices and stuff like that. And there's nothing worse than sitting there at the end of the hunt. But the client thoroughly enjoyed his hunt with you and trip. And he didn't get a wildebeest that was on his package. But you have to leave it on the invoice because it was a quoted package. And you have to, you have to explain to the client um, that he may have had an opportunity or whatever the case may be. And it's a paid-for animal. And it, it, was, it left us PHs in a very difficult situation because now all of a sudden your buddy who's been your friend for 10 days is angry at you because he's being billed for something he didn't, didn't receive. So, yeah, it's just a different... I, I just do it differently. I, I learned from that. I want O to leave happy. And when he gets that side, he needs to say good things about me. Not the, you know, you had to that company. They promise the world and you don't get everything. I don't ever want to have that uh, labeled on me. For sure. Uh, when, you, when you look at, um, you mentioned it now, you know, good quality animals. What are you looking for? Is it completely size or, or is it all about conservation with, as far as the age um, and that sort of stuff? Uh, age and maturity. That's he's got to be. He's got to be past his prime. That's what you're looking for. Um, and then sometimes I'll take out animals that have got slightly defected horns, or but they are of trophy size. So you obviously got to know how to judge your stuff. Um, so like a Nyala bull that I shot now with the last client, he didn't have the best shaped horns. They were skewed, but he was a he was a big mature bull. Um, so we took him out, and it helps the, the landowner as well because you don't want him with his punky horns breeding. 
So that's why you're a professional hunter. That's why we call it PHS. You've got to be able to make those calls. Uh, you know, and then also it's very difficult just to, to flip the coin where you go and hunt to these big fancy places and they've got these ear tag 56-inch kudu bulls running around <laughs> and it, it stands in front of the clouds and, you, and they, you're told you can't shoot the damn thing. <laughs> I, I went and hunted in a place specifically the bull didn't have a tag in it, but the same guy that missed three bulls, we went to go hunt in Impala and a, a freaking monster kudu bull stood 30 meters in front of us. And I couldn't shoot it. I, I couldn't. And because uh, the landowner said, but you leave my kudu bulls alone. We, we're not shooting them this year. And, and you've got to be able to tell the client, sorry, this is not the kudu area. We've got to go, got to go back there. It happens. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely the more difficult conversations to have in the pickup. But uh, Wayne, I wanted to, I've got load shedding in the next couple, the joys of, of South Africa. But, um, as a, I mean, you've had a extremely positive um, impact on my professional hunting career. So I want you to leave all the youngsters out there with a little bit of word of advice. One of your top takeaways. I mean, you've mentioned some incredible topics tonight, and um, but one of your most important takeaways. It could be what you've mentioned earlier, or some advice that you would leave with the younger generation coming through. Uh, what I say to the guys, it's not an easy industry, but if you're passionate about the push and you're passionate about dealing with complete strangers, remember, guys are a stranger and you're his best friend for 10 days, stay positive. You've got to keep the positivity up throughout the whole hunt. You can't let it slide and you can't let your client know, even though it is super frustrating and you can struggle five, six, seven days without shooting something, the wheel does turn. You do get back on it again. Just stay positive. Keep your client happy. And don't be scared to ask for help. Um, all the guys are there with better experience. I, I, me personally, I'm, I offer help where I can. But you will find yourself in a situation that you may have somebody in camp with you who can help you, especially if you're struggling with a client that's missing just listen to the old guys small little tips they they go a long way um, standing on the correct side of the client and making sure that he's looking at the correct animal just just listen to the older guys they will give you all the little advice around the around the fire and after one or two drinks especially if you're struggling Wayne, but thanks so much, and I, I definitely would love to do this again. I think there's just so much we haven't even touched on that I think we could go on forever about. But um, I just honestly, I want to try and help you wherever I can. So where can where can everyone find you? What are some of the? I mean, obviously social media, like we mentioned, some of the challenges. But other than that, what are some of the platforms that we can find you? I'll tag as many as I can down below. But yeah, so so you can find us on. Oh, no, we've got a website page, obviously, it's www.africanbrothersafari.com. You can find us on the internet. And then we have recently joined up with Outfitter Services, a great company. Um, it's a lot like Cook Your Hunt or whatever type of platform, but I want to say the best way to explain it is like an Airbnb booking. So you can go onto their website, Type in there, you know, experiences that you want. 
and we have advertised some of our hunts on there. Um, and it's a really great service they offer to outfitters, uh, hunters, guides all over the world. So get on to Outfitter Services and you will find everything there. Wayne, but thanks so much. Bro. This has been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, like I said, I definitely want to do this again. I think we've touched on some important topics. And then, um, but yeah, we'll we'll chat soon. All right, thanks, Brad. Keep well. Lucky. Have a good one. The Journal is brought to you by Treason. Don't just blend, become. Splitting Image Taxidermy. Worth remembering. Maxis Tires. Covering pHs over any terrain. Magnum Archery, Scully's, the little things are what makes life wonderful. Vanandi Blends, changing the game. FFS Outdoor, versatile gear for any situation. PH Toolbox, helping you make your own adventure.